Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, we'll be going back to ancient Scotland. I love Scotland. And we're now talking about the Romans in Scotland. We've done a podcast in the past with Dr. Andrew Tibbs, all about the Antonine Ward. It was one of the first podcasts we ever did. And Andrew, he's now back on the Ancients to talk about perhaps the most disputed, the most debated military event from ancient Scottish history. This is the Battle of Mons Graupius, the grand climax to the campaign of Agricola in the north in the late 1st century AD. Where did this battle take place? What do we know about it? How much of Tacitus's account can we really believe? In this podcast, Andrew really highlights why there is so much debate surrounding this battle and surrounding the whole campaign of Agricola in the north. So without further ado, here's Andrew. Andrew, it is wonderful to have you back on the podcast. It's great to be back. It's fantastic. I love coming on to History Hit and doing stuff. It's brilliant. Well, exactly. On History Hit. I'm glad you said on History Hit because you came on The Ancients about a year ago to talk about the Antonine Wall, one of our first ever podcasts. Since then, you've really hit the starlight. You've been on History Hit documentaries from Ardoch to Chester's Roman Fort to the Ninth Legion. Ninth Legion might even get a mention in this podcast because today... <laughs> We are talking about the Battle of Mons Graupius. Andrew, this is one of the most elusive, vague, debated military events, military clashes in ancient British history. Yeah, it's the culmination of first century Roman archaeology in North Britain. It's the top of the history pile. It's the big thing. The big thing indeed. So if we start with the background, first of all, who is our main source for this military event? So main source is a guy called Tastus. He's comes across as a very well-read individual. He was around, born at the same time as these campaigns were taking place. He writes what people describe as a biography of the main Roman governor, the Roman general in charge. He writes that we think towards the end of the first century, these campaigns are taking place late 70s, 80s AD in Scotland, in the north of Britain. Tacitus comes along and writes this. He writes it after the event. 
We're not quite sure when he writes it. We're not quite sure if Agricola is still alive at the time, but Castor certainly has some very good second-hand knowledge. I mean, is this quite key to emphasise right at the start, Andrew, that Tacitus, he does have this close personal link to the main figure in this Mons Graupia story? Yeah, I mean, this is vitally important. So Tacitus, who writes this book, it's called The Agricola. It is about Julius Gnaeus Agricola. And there's just this little minor detail, which is kind of quite key to everything, quite key to the interpretation, to what he says, how he says it. And that's because he's the son-in-law of Agricola. So he marries his daughter at one point and then goes on to write this, as I say, biography. And I say that in the loosest of terms, and I would never really, I think, personally describe it as a biography. It is probably best described as like a play or a film, that it's the edited highlights, that you have a beginning, a middle and an end. You have a big climax, you have the denouement, you have a afterthought. So, you know, this is a film of his life just written down without the pictures. Fair enough. Very interesting. I, I know someone has called it a hagiography before more than a biography. Can we say that as well? Or is that maybe a bit too far? It really comes down to your own interpretation of what you think of it. I mean, it starts out by saying it's a eulogy. This is a eulogy to my father-in-law. So, you know, whether you call it hagiography, historiography, biography, biopic, you know, the bottom line is it is not an accurate historical representation of what happened. It has elements of truth. It probably has elements of fiction. It's a blooming good read. It's a blooming good read indeed. We've got elements of fiction, elements of truth. So it is our main source. So, Andrew, what does Tastus tell us about Agricola's campaign in the run-up to Mons Graupius, before Mons Graupius, what do we know about Agricola's movements in modern-day Scotland? Yeah, so, well, this is another key point we'll probably get on to using that word Scotland. Let's get back to the story first of all before we pick holes in that. So this is like the film of Agricola's life. It starts off with brief biography of his early years, his, his military career, and then he comes to Britain, and it's very critical of his predecessors. They did nothing, but Agricola came here, and he went here, and he sorted these people out, and he went here and sorted these people out. And then the second part of the film is really all about Scotland. And then the book is very slightly peculiar in those terms to what we're used to, because it starts out with all these little biographical details saying, oh, he's humble and he's come to be brilliant. And then he comes to Scotland and it's the big fight of his life. He's going where you know, Julius Caesar didn't manage to get that far north. You know, Augustus didn't get that far north, all this sort of stuff. So he comes to Scotland or north of Britain and he starts campaigning and it's about, seven or eight years campaigning he does and he gets to the north of Britain and he gets to a river and it's called the Tannum and this is one of the big issues we have with it that this book doesn't really mention any geographical features there's one mountain Mons Graupius there are three rivers there are three tribes I think it is mentioned and I think there's three islands mentioned and it's very vague. It doesn't sort of say, this is the island of Mona and it's right here. And kind of everybody has sort of tried to piece things together afterwards. But anyway, he gets up to the Tanum or the Taos and he campaigns up to there and sorts them out. And then he falls back to the Clota and the Botitra 
two other rivers that, that are mentioned, and he creates a secure line of fortifications, and then he battles a bit further north again, and it all culminates in this big battle against the Britanni and the Romans, or the Caledoni, depending on translations and again and that. And I think for our purposes, we'll say Caledoni. Yeah, everybody knows what we're talking about. But again, all comes back to this text. And, and we have, say it was written by Tacitus. It was then lost as these things were. And it appears, I think, in a monastery in about the 15th century. It gets translated, it gets published. People start looking at it. It becomes a huge influence on the antiquarians, so from about the 17th century onwards. And then we get to the end of the 19th century, and a man called, I think it's Feveru, translates it in 1898. He's an American, hugely influenced by circumstances. His translation is tinkered with, improved upon, I guess, in the 1920s. And then that version is, again, a couple of decades later, tinkered again with by Ogilvy and Richmond, two sort of well-known names in British archaeology. And that's it. Every interpretation of what Agricola does, every sort of analysis that up till really past decade or so, maybe a bit longer, is all based on these old translations. Now, the latest of those translations are done by people that are influenced by military, the Great War, Depression, all these things that are going on. We've got a newer translation that kind of picks apart a lot of that. So that's kind of where we are with Testus and the publication and what's going on. And a lot of what we'll talk about is going to be influenced by those translations. Now, I don't speak Latin on the level of being able to translate first century documents. So you kind of rely on what these translations are. And some of those translations when it was originally done and it's building on these different versions, kind of interpret things in a certain way. Whereas now a guy called Anthony Woodman, he's based over in Virginia in America, he's done a lot of work to unpick that. And sometimes the words we think are quite accurate about something aren't as accurate as we'd like to think. And all this is important because I say, we've only got some like six or seven geographical locations or features that, that are mentioned in the text. And a lot of where we start thinking about where people were campaigning maybe isn't as accurate as we'd like to think. And if the campaigning is not accurate, is the big battle at the end of this as accurate geographically as some people would like to think? Very important to lay that all out first, Andrew. You did mention how during this part of Agricola, part of the text, he has this line of fortifications. And you do mention how there does seem to be elements of truth in the story. Because if we now turn to archaeological evidence, we do seem to have substantial, maybe a bit strong, but we do seem to have archaeological evidence surviving of fortifications that seem to date to the time of Agricola. So I think we've always got to be careful when we're talking about the archaeology and the individuals. It's partly because we can't geographically pin down a lot of what Agricola was doing. We know he was in North Britain, that's about it. The archaeological evidence says the fortifications are early, but a lot of that data is not scientific evidence. So when we come to date archaeological sites or Roman sites in Scotland, we've got about four different methods of dating those. So we have... 
finds. So these are archaeological artifacts, and some of those can be put into typology, so a series, so we know what's the earliest and what's the latest. Some of those can be dated if they're organic materials. One of the other methods is the entrances of the sites. So Roman camps, which are the temporary strongholds that they build, they have different types of entrance and we think certain entrances are from certain periods. So if we see a fort that has or a camp that has that type of entrance, we know it's earlier than a certain type of entrance. It seems to be in use in later sites. We've got something that's a variation on that is the sort of morphology. So camps can have a certain type of design. So they generally are playing card shaped camps and forts, but there are variations. We've got a first century fort at a place called Loudon Hill over sort of Glasgow-ish. It's not that near Glasgow, but it's over that way on the west of the country. And it's a sort of half-sized trapezoidal style fort. We've got Bocastle Fort, which is in Calendar. It's a square fort. Newstead, which is in the borders, that's a square fort. So we've got sort of typologies there that we think we can start to help date. And then the other one is proximity. So a fortification might be attributed a first century label because it happens to be next to a camp that we've positively identified as being from that period. So dating in Scotland, North Britain, is always a bit of a haphazard thing and there would be some of my colleagues who would be quite happy to redate everything. I mean, some of my colleagues that think it's all set in stone and I'm kind of on the, we need to do a big redating. And, and occasionally people will do that. We had a big pottery redating which helped to do some sites and take some of the sites like Bertha and that and sort of play around with the dating of those. So it's all quite complex. It's never as simple as it seems on the surface. In terms of what's happening in Scotland, it's further complicated because a lot of these sites haven't got the scientific dating. So although we think we've got lots of early sites and we probably have, what does early mean? So period we're really talking about under Agricola right, starts around about 76, 77 AD. Generally, everybody agrees it goes off in the mid 80s. That's when withdrawal happens about 86, 87. Some people argue this whole period is longer and they stay later. But there are at least two previous Roman governors who are active. Now, we know the fort at Carlisle was founded around 72 AD. So it's before this period that Agricola arrives. We know that Elgenhoch, which is a fort just south of Edinburgh, is really being constructed about 77, 78 AD. So we know there's stuff happening in that sort of lowland area. The first general, Bellanus, disappears about 71 AD. And we've got a quote from Statius, who is a Roman poet, and it's addressed to Blanus's son, and it sort of says, where the Caledonian plains are, now we think that's north of the fourth Clyde Isthmus, he placed watchtowers with wide tracks, ditches, built forts, and that poem basically implies there's something happening in Perthshire along the Gash Ridge. The next Roman governor is Cerealis, and there's some indications that he may be active in Scotland as well. Whether these two governors are doing a big invasion force or Agricola is the first to do that, we're not quite sure. The general consensus Agricola, but again, it's all the dating. We don't have lots of evidence. Most finds that happen in sort of north of the Fourth Clyde 
have generally been bits of pottery, occasional coins, but the pottery that we believe fits into a certain typology. And it's not entirely accurate. So we don't actually know, is Agricola the person coming and founding this? Tacitus says he is. He says that Agricola is such a great general that he decides where every fort is going to be built, every camp is going to be built. And this is why I don't like to describe it as a biography, because the Romans actually had detachments of specialist men that would go out and decide where to build a fort. Agricola may have approved it, but he wasn't unlikely to be been individually doing that. So we know these are early fortifications that are built in Scotland. We know that Agricola may have been around, but there's certainly some Roman sometime doing it. So, so we've got to be careful when we assume it's Agricola, because the archaeological evidence doesn't support that. And other than this biography and part of an inscription, I think it's from St Albans, and a lead pipe from Chester, there is no other mention of Agricola in the archaeological record, really. I mean, but Andrew, that is really interesting itself. When you mentioned Watchtower and when you mentioned north of the Clyde Forth Isthmus, I went there recently, so that's why my mind immediately went to it. But it went to that in stunning site, which is Ardoch Roman Fort, where we know there's a watchtower nearby. So it could be the Flavian first century AD fortifications, if they are first century. As you say, if we're going by what you're saying there, they could have been constructed around that time, but just not by Agricola. Yeah, it's a possibility, but it's like everything. It's all possible. We just don't have firm evidence and we're relying a lot on Roman texts. And as we've sort of said about Tacitus, there's a bias there. Everybody has an ulterior motive. Tacitus says Bolanus is rubbish. Statius says, well, actually, Bolanus has conquered the north. We've got another quote from, I think it's Cassius Dio, basically saying that there was campaigning in Caledonia for 30 years before Agricola crops up. But again, that comes down to where's Caledonia. We think it's generally north of the Fourth Clyde, but it's also used as a term to be beyond the Roman Empire. Your Roman Empire there is northern England, south of Adrian's Wall, where that gets put. So it's all incredibly vague. Everybody has tried to use all these little fragments to fit a jigsaw, but it's like having a jigsaw and it's pure sky and you don't have any, any of the edges or the corners and you're trying to fit it all together and sometimes a bit fits, but it's coincidental that it's the right bit and it's not the right bit. Better you than me trying to figure that out. <laughs> well, before we go on to Montscrapius itself, one more story from Agricola that I'd like us to talk about and this is the Ninth Legion disaster. Andrew, what is this story? So Agricola is campaigning in Caledonia. It's in the part of the book where he's into Caledonia. He's campaigning. Again, we don't know where in Caledonia, how far north or how far south. He's decided to be more effective. He's going to split his army into three columns. And so they're going to break him into three groups. So they go off and do everything, meet up again. It's a tactic the Romans do seem to use sometimes. One group is camped probably in a camp. We don't actually know whether it's a camp or a fort. And the difference is your camp's your temporary accommodation. It can be occupied for a few nights, a few weeks, where you're crossing over the landscape. Your fort is your permanent station, where you're sort of parked there longer term to secure the area. So camps are when you come in to conquer, when you're securing, you build forts. So this group of soldiers is somewhere in one of these fortifications. The enemy... The indigenous people get wind of this and decide to attack and basically come in and slaughter them, break into the camp, big fight going on. 
the interesting thing is it's taken quite a while, this fight, long enough for Agricola, who is presumably somewhere else in the area but not on their doorstep, to come back with his men and save the day. Now, we know there's a Ninth Legion. We think there's some indication of them being in Scotland at this time. It's mentioned in the book, they say the Ninth Legion, so that bit marries up. It's very difficult to prove that they were at this particular site and they did it. And the reason for that is because, so they come to a site, they surveyed it, marked it out, and then they dig big ditches, be a good six, seven foot deep, and then they piled all that earth up into an embankment, and that's their defences. So that's what we call the rampart and the ditch defences. Within that, all the soldiers are staying in their tents. Now, when the Romans leave an area, what they seem to do is knock down the ramparts, put it back into the ditch, and then clear off, and it's so the enemy can't occupy that and get a strategic advantage. So the problem is, if defences are breached, and that's what we're getting from Tacitus, that that's what happens, they're going to knock down these ramparts. Well, these ramparts don't survive now. We have one or two sites where they're three, four foot high, the remaining ramparts. Most of them are ploughed out in that, so we can't really find that. Next sort of evidence you'd be looking for is burning. Did they start burning down tents and things like that? That may or may not have happened. We'd need to excavate a camp and find evidence of that. But there is some indication, certainly with the forts, that when they abandon them, they burn them down the buildings rather than dismantle. It's just burn it down, move on. I think Ardoch is an example of that. So if they were staying in a fort and that was breached, again, we can't find the evidence. Problem is, and as I say, Agricola or Tacitus's version of Agricola, it's a movie. And this is your inciting incident. So this is the beginning, really, of the build-up to the Battle of Mons Graupius. This is sort of saying, actually, you know, Agricola almost lost the day, but he came in, he saved it. He was a brilliant leader, but he was determined to have his revenge and carried on campaigning. That's what it is. So something may have happened. The Ninth Legion, the indication is from the literary evidence that it was already depleted because it had been involved in the Boudican Revolt some 20-odd years before, 15, 20 years beforehand. So it's difficult to know what was happening. Was this just a rubbish legion that Tastus decided, right, I need a story. You're the guys that are going to be, you know, it's the same, you know, you watch a soap opera. You know, you pick the family that are going to get wiped out and the falling into the river or something. And that's what Dastas is doing. You know, we need to look at it like you would a film. It is all very interesting, that story. So thank you for explaining that. But let's go on to the big climactic event of this ancient soap opera, as it were. We're Basil of Mons Graupius. Now, we're going to keep on Tacitus because it's important, first of all, especially where we're going to be going on to later in the discussion, the geography, the topography that Tacitus says at this battlefield. What does Tacitus say? So he's very vague on it. So he incredibly vague, horribly vague. He basically says Agricola arrives at Mons Graupius. That's it. There's slightly more description later on that when the battle lines are drawn up, that the Britanni, the natives, the Caledoni, are on a hill and there's two pushes forward by them. As the first one's happening, he describes all the population being up the hill. But if you look at Scotland, it's a very hilly country. <laughs> you know, there's nothing else really that stands out in that description. We know it must be fairly level at the bottom of the hill because he talks, Tacitus talks about chariots and they're going to need flattish ground to fight on. 
We know there is some indigenous settlement roundabout because after the battle, he talks about houses being burned down. I think he talks about chimney smoke and some of them, that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean anything. He doesn't describe fortified settlements or anything like that. So it's very vague. We've got another description. I think it's in the speech by Calgacus, who is designated the sort of leader or spokesperson in Tacitus's account. And he says, I think it's him that says, there's nothing really between them and it's the rocks and the sea. So it implies it's on the edge somewhere, which people have interpreted as North Scotland, but quite honest, you know, that's a different thing. Different thing indeed. Let's keep on the battle for now, my friend. Let's keep on the British force for a bit, because you mentioned chariots there, but you also mentioned the name Calgacus, because he is quite an important figure in this whole battle narrative, in the whole Agricola story, isn't he? He is and he isn't. So again, you think of it as a film script, you know, it's a film, and this is all about Agricola. It's told from his point of view, it's told about him, it's got the tragedy, it's got the highs, it's got the lows. Calgacus is a storytelling tool. So around this time when Tacitus is writing it, and this is what I meant at the start when I said Tacitus is a very well-read, knowledgeable, seemingly intelligent person, because the literary tradition at that time, and we have this with the accounts of Boudicca, is that you have the very anti-Roman, you know, the big pantomime villain that comes in and does, oh, I hate the Romans and we're going to be better because we will rise above the Romans and we'll conquer the world, we'll be brilliant and we'll beat all those Romans and we hate the Romans and we're very anti-Roman. And that's what it's all about. Basically, he's doing a sort of literary trend. He's doing the Jackie Collins thing, you know, it's trying to do the big sort of pantomime villain that's going to ruin the heroes journey because you know that's just the trend of the time so Calcacus did he exist we've no evidence there's very little there to imply that there was that sort of figure that there are leaders I mean this is what they described there are leaders and then he talks about Calcacus as being the leader was it the same person there probably was someone on the battlefield who may have been a bit of a figurehead is that the figure of Calcacus which is you know, what Tastas is doing, we probably won't really know that. I mean, there's implications that, you know, there is a figure there, but doing all these big speeches. I think out of the whole of Tastas, there are only really three people, I think, mentioned by name. And it's Agricola, Calgacus. And then he does this very strange thing of talking about after the battle, people have fallen and there's a Roman soldier who he mentions by name, Attilus, I think it is. And that's it. There's no mentions of names. You know, this is not about the Caledoni. This is, you know, all about Agricola. I remember looking at some like quotes from ancient history, and one of them, which is always striking for me, is the Calgacus one. And correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, Andrew, but it's, it's like the Romans, they make a desert and they call it peace and all of that. I mean, what are the main sort of messages put over in Calgacus's speech? Well, it's the anti-Roman rhetoric is being the pantomime villain. You know, it is, how do we make Agricola look even better? You know, we've had the big inciting incident with the Ninth Legion. We've come to the culmination. You know, the whole campaigning has almost geographically progressed to this. It is the climax. 
Calgacus is really there to challenge some of the Roman perceptions, have someone challenging them on their behalf. And Tacitus is very good at that. He's created this character who may have some sort of historical or origins and reality. But it's about sort of saying, well, you come in here, you do all this, you know. And I think we can quite often interpret that as trying to sort of humiliate or go against Agricola. And it's not for that, because the Romans are quite arrogant to a large extent. And they will be like, yes, we did come in here and we gave you peace. And, you know, we did this left, right and centre, you know. And the other thing to bear in mind is a battle for the Romans is a very much the last thing they do. It's a very costly exercise. You know, if you start losing people, well, you then have to get more people and train them. If you start losing weapons, well, then you have to forge those weapons. And if you're campaigning... They're not likely to have large-scale weapons factories, you know, when they're at their camps. Those are back in the forts and possibly even further south at their winter quarters. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit... I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, we're marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We welcome Joe Dittmar, who was on the 105th floor of Tower 2. He takes us through his personal experience of surviving 9-11 and his escape on that day. We also welcome Jessica DeLong, who provides a different perspective. She served at Ground Zero, and she tells us about the efforts to fight the raging fires and evacuate thousands of people via boat. We're also joined by world-leading experts on the history of terrorist hijackings and the history of terror attacks on New York City going back to the 1920s. Join us for this special commemorative week on the History Hit Warfare podcast. So, Calgacus's speech, we've got the Britons lined up on the hill at Mons Graupius, according to Tacitus. 
But then what does Tacitus tell us then about the Roman deployment? How does Agricola supposedly deploy and prepare his troops for the clash? So he does his rousing speech. Calgacus's speech lasts for several pages. I can't remember how long it exactly. It's several pages long, whereas Agricola is quite a bit shorter. But again, it's not a verbatim speech. Neither of them are verbatim, you know. Tacitus wasn't there. This is for the reader. It's like when you read a newspaper, you know, there are edited highlights, and that's what Agricola's doing. He's doing speech writing. The way Tacitus writes certainly writes Calgacus's speech. It's got hints of Cicero, you know. It's a very big speech. You know, Cicero's the great orator, and it's reflecting that. And that's why I think I said at the start... Tacitus is very well read. He knows all this sort of stuff. There are elements of Virgil in some of the work when it's been analysed. So Agricola's speech isn't as big and dramatic. It's a bit of a pep talk of, you know, come on, lads, we'll do this. We'll get it over and done with for the might of Rome and let's go get them. You know, it doesn't need to be that long because the Romans are the readers. You know, he's writing that for that audience. So why tell them what they already know? You know, it's like, again, back to the pantomime analogy. It's like, boo, hiss, and a yay. You know, it's like cheering the good guys and, and boo, hiss for the bad guys. You know, you whip them into a frenzy for the bad guys. And that's exactly what Tacitus is doing. I think they're mentioning there's something like, you know, we've got 8,000 auxiliary soldiers and we've got something like 30,000 Caledoni, 3,000 Roman cavalry. And again, it comes back to this being a bit of a propaganda piece. You've got, by the end of it, 10,000, you know, Caledoni dead against some like 360 Romans. It's like, really? Interestingly, though, it's a bit of a tangent, but 10,000 is the figure that's given. And back in the days of Rome, when a Roman general was successful, he'd have a triumph, a big parade and lots of big celebrations. And you needed to have 5,000 natives dead for that. So what Tacitus is doing is giving Agricola 10,000, so twice the limit for the triumph that, that he never really gets. But, you know, all this is propaganda. So it's basically playing up the role of Agricola. You've done the spoiler there. You've kind of told us who wins this battle in the Tacitus is Agricola. Sorry. <laughs> it's quite all right. I think we could all guess where it was going. But I mean, how does, once again, I'm going to say with the words according to Tacitus, we will get onto the locations and the archaeology. And you have very well throughout this podcast explained why we need to be very dubious of this account. But according to Tacitus's Agricola, how does Agricola gain this victory? What do we know about the battle itself? So he mentions in the book that we've got four groups of auxiliaries there. Now, the auxiliaries are the part of the Roman army, but they're the hired help, they're the mercenaries. And, and quite often they have skills like archers and things like that. And we've got six actually that are there. We've got four Batavians and we've got two of the Tungarians. So the Batavians are from what is the Netherlands now. And the Tungarians are from, I think it's East Belgium. So he sends in those and he keeps back some of the legionaries. Legionaries are the ones you see in the films, the nice armors, marching for a nation. They have their own type of fortification of fortress. So they're kept back. I think the wording is something like it's just in case. And it's actually one of the sort of trends, the sort of military trends of the time. That's what they do. They keep the legionaries out of it, send in the auxiliaries. And to an extent, the basic reason is that they're expendable. 
you know, your soldier is more expensive because he's the one that's well-trained. Some of them can be from the ruling classes, you know, the military commanders. You kind of don't really want to get rid of them if you can help it. There's also the cavalry. So he sends in, I think it's about 3,000 cavalry as well. So the horsemen and, and that seems to solve it. They don't seem to, I don't think, send in the legionaries. And as you say, this all results in Agricola supposedly getting this decisive victory at the end of this soap opera. And like this is the big climax with the big Roman victory at the end. Yeah, this is it. You know, it's all built up to this moment. And boy, wasn't he good in it. He's completely wiped out people. They essentially commit genocide, which, you know, they've had lots of problems with these people. They're on the battlefield, they kill them. If they're lying there, half dead. They actually claim, I think, at one point, I think that some of their families come round and kill them. It's just everybody dies. It's quite a, a brutal. But then again, warfare is like that, and it was no different, you know, three, four hundred years ago in some of the battles. You, know, you get rid of the survivors lop off the finger, take the rings, dig out the gold teeth and all that sort of stuff. It's the same, you know, 2,000 years ago on this battle. I mean, I often think of it, you read some of the description and you see some of the stuff on the news today in places like Syria, and it must have been very much similar back then that you've got refugees, you've got families completely wiped out, you've got children who are orphaned, people fleeing into the country... We know the battle takes place late in the year. The weather in Scotland can be quite harsh. There's probably people dropping left, right and centre that weren't necessarily on the battlefield. You've also got this really crazy description of some of the chariot horses from the Caledoni, their chariot horses, that when they lost the rider, the horses started careering into people and headbutting and crashing into their sides. And I think quite often because 2,000 years ago and there's been this sort of mythical status, we actually forget Roman Scotland was a nasty place. When you're living under oppressors who take what they want, whether it's money, food or your wife, nasty, nasty place. And this battle, whether it's fictional or not, would not have been a nice place to be. It would have been a very bloody mess. No, you're absolutely right. It's good to cover all of that. And Andrew, well, that is the story of Mons Graupius, according to Tacitus. Let's delve into the archaeology now, because the hunt for the battlefield of Mons Graupius, it's been ongoing, it's been debated for a long, long time. We'll go into some of the potential sites in a moment. But first of all, big overarching question, which I know you like to be asked, so I'm going to ask you it now. How do archaeologists go about trying to identify an ancient battle site, particularly in this case in northern Britain? Well, I think the basic reality is that you don't. <laughs> <laughs> For a lot of reasons, okay, it's great to be able to pinpoint something that is written about something that has become a modern sort of legend, fable. It's great to be able to pinpoint that, but as archaeologists, we have to have questions. You know, you just don't go dig something because excavation is destruction. Once you've taken that stone out or that wall or that body or whatever artifact, it's no longer in the ground. It's no longer in its original context. We start losing data. We have to preserve it. Why was it there? All these questions come up. So looking for something like a battlefield, we try not, but it's not that we try not to do it, it's that we're all proactive in doing it. There's all the ethical thing behind it, because you're talking about a cemetery. 
these are people's final resting places and we have to respect that completely. It's not about treasure hunting. It's not about, oh, I found the battle site. You know, they're people's graves, lives. If it's anything like Tasta says, it was horrific and brutal. There will be bits of body scattered and all that, you know. So there's a whole ethical side of it. But it's also the cost. You know, if you start finding organic material that has to be preserved and that costs a fortune. I think Vindolanda, they keep finding leather shoes and it's a couple of hundred pound a shoe to preserve that. And you've got to preserve every one. You can't pick and choose because you don't know how important it is. Same with the armour. Sometimes the soil can rust the armour. Sometimes it can preserve it. We have to balance that. We have to chemically sort of get that to make it more secure so it doesn't keep eroding. We have to preserve all that. And if this is a battle site where you've got, you know, what's that, about 12,000 Romans, well, 12,000 auxiliaries and cavalry, however many legionaries were sat watching, and, you know, 30,000 indigenous people, that's a lot of things to start finding. So that gets expensive. So, you know, if we found it, of course, we'd do a lot with it. We'd have to spend that, but I don't think anyone's really got the money to go looking for it. And then you've got people that will come and do what we call night hawking, where they'll dig the ground, they'll take stuff, not declare it, and then goes on eBay or other such sites where these things can be sold without knowing its history. And we lose a lot of data again. And we don't want that. You know, we want to learn from this. But we have to have the questions to go in and dig it. There's not a lot of Roman archaeologists studying Scotland. There's not a lot of battlefield experts. So we're not going to proactively do it at this stage. I don't think anyone's got a desire to do all the work. I mean, you're talking about a lifetime of work if you found it. That being said, the way battle sites tend to be found is by accident. So you'll have a farmer or someone out doing something in a field, they'll find a couple of bits of armour. Local archaeologist then gets called in to have a look at it or the treasure trove people do it, as it is in Scotland or Portable Antiquities in England and Wales. They'll find stuff, they'll find more stuff. You start to think maybe this is a battle site. And then you probably do some select work to work out how big it is and all that. But we have a lot of what we call non-invasive techniques. It's a lot of geophysical survey, metal detecting. We can plot things with all that without disturbing the ground. So if we were to find the music, that's the sort of thing we'd be doing to try and preserve it. I mean, I was going to say, you raised it just there. I mean, with the development of more modern technologies, as time goes on, do you think there's more opportunity for us to, as you say, these non-evasive techniques to locate potential battle sites without interfering, without interrupting? You do make the important point that these are ancient cemeteries, as it were. These scientific methods, this new technological environments, they could really help in that regard. They can and they can't. They're great techniques. They can tell us a heck of a lot about an area, small area, big area. We can do it with a great deal of accuracy. We can do a lot of it remotely. That saves money. You know, someone has to pay for all this. We can learn so much from them. We can learn where to dig if we were going to dig. What's the best site to answer certain questions? We can do so much more, but it's still a needle in a haystack. We don't know where Mons Graupius is, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But all that sort of thing, you've got to find the site to then survey it. We can't go around every potential site, and there's, I think, probably 30, 40 proposed sites from Mons Graupius. We can't go around all of those. It takes forever. It also takes a professional knowledge. There aren't many 
people that know what the typical site profile site for a Roman battle site is. We can do lots of analysis, but it does take people that have that knowledge and expertise to be able to say, well, this seems to fit a profile of this site in another country and things like that. We've got one or two additional clues from Tastus. So he says, I think it's the Roman troops were lined up in front of a Roman camp. So that kind of narrows it down for a lot of sites. We know there are a lot of camps out there we probably haven't found yet, but it kind of helps to narrow down some of it. But it's still, again, you've got to have a look at the type of camp, the period of camp, what's the evidence the Romans were here at the right time. Then you've got to start looking at the battle stuff. Then you've got to have a look at what are the finds on the ground? Have we found anything? Do they come to the right period? Then we survey it, the signatures, when we do resistivity or magnetometry, as we probably do for this, starts to build a picture. Is that likely to be Roman? Can we test to see the site is Roman? That's before we start looking for remains of the actual evidence of the physical fighting and that. We're just looking at the fixed things in the ground that last longer. And one of the unfortunate things is certainly in parts of the northeast of Scotland, the soil corrodes a lot of metal. So a lot of it could have disappeared, a lot of that evidence, a lot of bones have disappeared. It's why we don't have tons of Roman bodies from Scotland. You know, these things do disappear. Well, you mentioned in passing as we were chatting there that there are like 30 or 40 different proposed locations for the battle. We're not going to go through them all. <laughs> but we are going to focus on a few of, just shall we say, the big ones. I'm not going to say more interesting because I'm sure they are all very interesting but we are going to start with what seems to be the big one when you do any looking into the Bastemons Graupius. And this is the site of Benahi. Andrew, where is Benahi and why is this particular location so popular with people when it comes to the Bastemons Graupius? So Benahi is in Aberdeenshire. It's a big hill. When I say hill, it's sort of mountain, small mountain. It's got evidence of several indigenous settlements hill forts on and around it. I don't think any of those have been dated and we do have to be careful in the dating because if it was abandoned by the Roman period or occupied after the Roman period that you can't use that as evidence to support it was a site the Romans came to and again we've got to be careful there's a hill fort it's not too far away from there called Tapa North which has been excavated by Gordon Noble at Aberdeen University recently and we thought that could have been Roman. I think some people have even proposed that as a site of Mons Graupius. They've had organic materials and things come up that they've been able to properly date, scientifically date, and it doesn't look like it's contemporary with the first century Roman activities. So kind of, that's how it's. So we can't sort of say that's a hill fort. The Romans were here at the same time people were living in it. We just can't say that. We can think it, but we can't say it. So Benaki. It's got the hill fort on the top. It's got some hill forts round to the side. There's quite a few hill forts and other hills nearby. So it does seem to be in a bit of a population centre at some time. And it's kind of got the flat plains in front of it. So it kind of does fit the profile on that level. Nearby, there are a number of Roman camps. There's a particularly large one. I think it's about 50 hectares, just under 50 hectares. Um, at a place called Logiderno, which is fairly nearby. And it does seem to fit the profile, but no one's ever found anything there. 
I don't think Logie Durno is on top of the hill, so you're sort of losing that element that's in the description that the Romans lined up in front of it. So, yeah, it's a possibility. I mean, it was put forward, I think, first of all, possibly by Gordon Maxwell, who was a, worked for, what was the Royal Commission, Ancient Historic Monuments in Scotland, very knowledgeable gentleman, found lots of Roman sites for aerial survey, did lots of excavation, We've not really revisited that since he proposed it back in, I think, the early 80s. I think his book came out. It's a site we give some credence to. I mean, Gordon knows his stuff and he is an expert and he's the sort of person that if he makes a guess, it's an educated guess and we should you know, respect and acknowledge that. So Benaki is a possible one, but again, the archaeology isn't there yet with it. Isn't there yet, yet <laughs> indeed. Well, I'm hoping for future discoveries at any of these locations to cast more light on this ancient clash. But we're going to go a bit further north. I think it's slightly north if you look at a map. To a site where you might initially think of a famous battle that occurred several, several centuries later. And this just south of Inverness, this is Culloden. But also, Andrew, it's the theory that this could be the site too. Yeah, there's been a couple of people have suggested it, including at least one expert that knows their stuff. I don't think there's been too much published about it being a Roman site, so I won't name names of people that have said it because that's up to them to publish it. And I haven't seen the case for that, but in my mind, Culloden is probably not a great site. So we know that because it's been used as a battlefield back in the Jacobite uprisings in 1746 when the Battle of Culloden took place. And at that time, Bonnie Prince Charlie was you know, leading his men and he was camped out in Inverness and he was deciding, where should I have a battle with the Duke of Cumberland? And that was meant to be their big battle, you know. So, so in that movie, this is the climax of Bonnie Prince Charlie's story. And he had with him several commanders, I think as he termed them, and these were very experienced military men. And that the Earl of Murray was one of them in particular. And I think it was Earl of Murray that said to him, don't hold it at Culloden. The terrain is rubbish. It's a very marshy place, a bit of forest. It's not great. It'll bog us down. We'll be quite slow. And a few other people suggested other places, somewhere near what is now Inverness Airport. Some people wanted to fight further east. Body Prince Charlie was... Really, you've got to feel sorry for him. He didn't have any military expertise at all. He was not a general. He was leading the life of a prince, whether or not you think that was something he was entitled to. Do. But he was relying on his experts. And I think the wrong people were whispering in his ear, people that had undue influence over him. And I think Charlie wanted to prove himself and took the decision to have the battle at, at Culloden. And it was a disaster. And a lot of that was down to the terrain that you were having men walking through marshes and it hampered them. It didn't help anything. So to then propose Culloden as a Roman site, in my mind, if it wasn't great in the 18th century, it wouldn't have been great 2,000 years ago. And that's, well, before a lot of modern agriculture improvements, which start happening around the 18th century and improved a lot of land. But Culloden today is still quite a marshy terrain that isn't great. So I'm always a bit sceptical on it. And the other thing that doesn't lend itself to being the battle site, there isn't really a single mountain 
there. Well, I say mountain, I think it depends on your translation again, Tastus. It could be a big mound as one of the translations. And there are a couple of volcanic rocks up there, Tom Nahurich, where the modern cemetery in Inverness is one of them. It's not too far from Culloden, but it doesn't seem to be big enough to line up lots of people on. To me, it doesn't have a lot going, and I would need to see someone put forward a good evidence base or some good arguments for that. But I think it's proposed, but not one I would take seriously at this stage. Well, let's not look through all 30. Don't worry, I'm not expecting you to know all of the 30 <laughs> other theories that there are for various battle sites. But are there any other battle sites that you'd like to mention, proposed possible battle sites for the clash at Mons Graupius? I think there are a number of interesting ones. I think we've got two places that we shouldn't dismiss, and I suspect other people have proposed these. Down in Dumfries and Galloway, we've got a number of mounds, big hills, that we know are sort of active around this town. One of those being Burnswark. Now, Burnswark becomes quite key in the Antonine period, seems to be where they start doing big offensives and attacking it. It's a big volcanic hill, it's got some indigenous activity on top. It's got a couple of Roman camps around the bottom. The dating for all this is very vague. We don't have evidence for first century activity on the hill. The Roman camps, we haven't quite dated, but there does seem to have been an attack in the second century. It always strikes me as it fits the criteria quite well. There's bits of Tastus that says they're looking at the harbours, the indigenous harbours, they're sailing around the coast. And there's a lot of indigenous activity on the coast. We have that in Dumfries and Galloway on the Solway coast. We've got a lot happening there. Again, a lot of undated sites and activity. It seems to be quite fortified in the first century and possibly slightly later. So it's quite an interesting area. It fits some of the criteria. It doesn't fit other bits of the criteria. So Tastus talks about the Tawam or the Tawas, which we think is the Tay. We're assuming that is the same location as today's Tay. They then fall back and create a solid line between the Forth and the Clyde. We're kind of assuming the Clota and the Boditra are the Forth Clyde. There is some interpretation of the language that suggests it could be river estuaries, which could be the Tyne and the Solway. That's quite debated, but it is a possibility. So this is what I say, we can't take Tacitus too literally because the line of where everything's happening can move back and forth. The other interesting site we've got is Newstead and the Scottish borders near the town of Melrose. Um, there's the Eildon Hills there, which is really two sort of peaks and a sort of conjoined hill, quite large there. There's a Roman watchtower on it. Um, there's evidence of indigenous activity on it. There's a lot of evidence of indigenous activity around the base of the hill. A lot of things that are unchecked, haven't been investigated since, although I think Gordon Noble from Aberdeen is doing some work on the hill itself in future. But Melrose, you've got a Roman fort there. It's rebuilt in the first century. It's rebuilt twice in the second century. There are about six or seven Roman camps around there. So there's a lot of activity going on there. Again, not much evidence to indicate a battle site, but it does fit some of the criteria. It's one where there's a lot going on archaeologically that we need to fathom what's going on. Does that mean Agricola was there having a big battle? No. But equally, you know, it's just as valid as thinking about Benaki. 
It's so interesting how we've gone from the Scottish borders to Benaki to Culloden. So like a huge geographical area, which is really interesting for where we currently are at with trying to, well, the theory surrounding where the Battle of Mons Graupius could have been fought. Now, Andrew, this is like a what if scenario, but let's say in the future something happens, which means that someone is able to find a site which they do believe and they do state this seems to be the Battle of Mons Graupius location. What would be the implications of such a discovery? It would be the first known location of a Roman battle site in Britain. One of the only ones in Europe. We've got one or two elsewhere. We've got evidence of stuff happening in Spain. We've got Teutoburg Forest in Germany, although that's debated by some archaeologists. But it would be huge. Not only because your battle sites are protected sites, because they're graves. So you're talking about a mass grave. And those people... As with any excavation that the archaeologists do, those people have a right to be respected and done with whatever. And in this country, we've not really had a lot of conversations about how we do that with battlefields. You know, recent battles, First World War, Second World War, we've got nothing like that in Britain. They treat those with great respect and don't do anything with them in Belgium and Flanders, France, all that sort of place. What would we do with it? You know, what do you do? Do you excavate, recover the bodies? Do you leave them where they fell? The knowledge of it, we'd probably start to think about doing some sort of programme of research on it, little bits here and there. It just depends where it is. Is it a risk of being developed or coastal erosion or things like that? If so, we have to protect it, we have to record it. If it's a farmer's field, well, what do you do then? If you say to him, well, this is actually one of the most important sites in the country, you're not allowed to plough it. Is that ethical to stop him doing what his family may have done for 50 years? There's a whole cacophony of questions we'd have to ask. And, you know, the bottom line, I think, for archaeologists in this day and age is it is a, a gravesite, as I say, so you've got to respect that. And the Culloden is a good example of it's never really been touched because it is a gravesite and there will be human remains all over the place. And a lot of them were gathered and put into graves, but there'll be lots, bits of people that weren't. So you've got that whole side of things. But it's then what questions do we want to ask as archaeologists? How big was the battlefield? Can we confirm it's a Roman battlefield? That would probably involve excavation. Can we confirm it's first century? So that would involve excavation and dating of artefacts, or there's slightly new techniques that we can do. You then want to look at the wider area, because bear in mind that there's been estimates of the baggage train for the campaign in Scotland could have been up to 10 miles long. So it's not just about this little area where everybody was getting killed. I say little, it'll be a huge area because we had cavalry. You've got allegedly 30,000 people. It's probably a bit of poetic license in that, but you've still got lots of indigenous people that are on the hill, lots of Romans at the bottom next to a camp. What do you do about the camp? Do you look at that and investigate that? It's huge. It's almost unthinkable the amount of work it would involve. And of course, that costs money. A hundred years ago, when you did a big excavation of a fort, such as at Ardoch, you came, you dug, you went. We don't do that now. We survey it. We scan it. We do everything before we touch it. Then we decide what are the best bits. You know, if you're talking about a Roman fort... Do you dig the central buildings where the commander lived? Do you dig the barracks where the soldier lived? Do you dig the granaries 
where you can potentially get grains that you can start to look at their diet, you can date it. Do you dig the ditches, which can tell you how long it was occupied for, depending on how much silt was built up on it. So you have to look at all that. And this is why we do the surveying, because then you can target where to excavate. And if we want to date it, there are places you would do. If you want to find out who was living there, there are bits you would dig. And it's the same with the battle site. You know, we'd want to find out where the Roman lines were, where the lines uh, the indigenous people were, where they up the hill is. Tastus was saying or was it something else so it's a hugely complicated project and I know people that have done training excavations at universities over you know six seven weeks every summer for four or five years and that's two three years of writing up it takes them you know because these people also have normal jobs they've got to do everything else so it's time and money and staff. Silchester which is the Reading University excavations, they've been digging there for 20, 25 years, something like that. And they've only really dug one small quadrant. I think it's Insula 9 they did for most of that time. I think they moved on now. But it just goes to show, you know, a whole battle site will take a lot of time to excavate. And is it going to tell you much? Not really. There are certain bits will tell you a lot, so you have to be very selective. But as I say time and money and there's just not the money out there sadly in this day and age not yet my friend but hopefully in the future things will change i mean that's all really interesting to hear the behind the scenes as it were of the archaeology world of roman archaeology in scotland which of course you are a key part of andrew this has been a brilliant chat just to wrap it all up quickly agricola following the Bassamons graupius according to tastis it doesn't seem like he stays in that area of the world for much longer after that is it no, so he does the battle. It seems to go well, according to Tastus' lots of celebration. His men like it. The emperor's now changed its demission by the time we get to the battle. By all accounts, not a particularly pleasant emperor, quite jealous. This is why we think that Tastus is writing sort of slightly later on because he's quite critical of the emperor in a fairly subtle way but basically saying Agricola didn't get the recognition he deserved and everybody was not impressed and there's even I think you could translate one passage as sort of indicating that he should be emperor rather than Domitian and all this stuff but basically Tacitus gets recalled to Rome looks like he might be going to Syria it doesn't really happen he then seems to be put out to pasture and that's it. Basically, the emperor being jealous, according to Tacitus. And of course, it's all very biased. And I think, from what I recall, there were the sort of stories that you say the wrong thing about the emperor and you're off. I think it's Cicero is one example of that. You start cheesing off the people in charge and you're off to fall on your sword sort of thing. So that's why we think he's writing after all this has happened and the mission's gone. But that's who Tacitus is blaming on. The reality is there's a bit of trouble in Germany. German frontier is always a bit troublesome. It remains troublesome. But there's a bit of a need to have extra soldiers there. So we think they're taken from the south of Britain and put to Germany, which means that they need to then pull people back from Scotland to secure it. And they seem to fall back to the sort of North England line until... They start campaigning again under Hadrian. So like 50 odd years later, they start doing a bit more in Scotland again. 
Absolutely. And of course, Antoninus Pius, and then you get the Antonine Wall and all of that. So they're back there again. I mean, Andrew, I think the key phrase from this whole discussion over the last hour or so is according to Tacitus. <laughs> this has been a really fun chat. Monsgrapius is always a great topic to talk about. Really interesting topic, popular topic. Last but not least, you have done a lot of work on the Romans in Scotland. Let us know one more time your book. What is your book called on this topic? It's Beyond the Empire, A Guide to the Roman Remains in Scotland. It's out at the moment, available from all good bookshops, and should have another one, Scotland's Early Roman Fortifications, coming out next year. Fantastic. Looking forward to reading that in due course. Andrew, always a pleasure, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.